Welcome back to The Strong Room. On this segment, trusted estate planning specialist Sherry McMillan explains why proactive tax planning is so important for snowbirds. The first thing for families to understand is there's two ways in which you're asset base or estate can be taxed. It can be taxed on an annual basis as we're going through life each calendar year. And then, of course, it can be taxed in the year of death when we pass on. That's a second tier tax that we have. Now, in Canada, from an estate planning point of view, we have both annual tax, but we actually don't have an inheritance tax in Canada. When we die, we pay simply on the gains of on our assets that we have not yet paid income tax on. So it's only one tier of tax, truly. Unfortunately, in America, it doesn't work like that. The IRS has what we call an inheritance tax. And what it means in English is this. I have my annual tax that I pay the IRS. And then if I die in my estate, I also have an inheritance tax on the value of my estate, not on the gain on my estate, but on the value of my estate. So if my estate is in the markers of millions, let's say I have a $10 million estate, there's potential $4 million tax burden attached to it. Ouch. It's about 40%. So you do not want to get caught in this situation, of course. And unfortunately, there's a lot of myth and mystery in this area. And there's also what we want to hear is what I call it. (laughs) I mean, we obviously want to be warm during the winter months. I'm not the very best travel agent when it comes to the IRS and the U.S. uh, situation. But I want people to understand the circumstances that they may find themselves in. And that is this. Your rule is that you can remain in the United States, what we call the 183-day rule, the snowbird rule that everybody talks about and refers to. How it works is they take the last three years. And so what they do is they say, in last year, we're going to count 100% of the days you've spent there. And the preceding year to that, we're actually going to count a third of those days you've spent. And the year before that, we're going to count a sixth of those days you've spent, and we're going to add them all up. And if they're in excess of 183 days, you're offside when it comes to both your annual tax and potentially your inheritance tax. So it's a very, very dangerous place to be. Generally, our rule of thumb in our office is not to spend more than 121 days per calendar year consecutively year after year in in the United States. And then that should create a situation where you're not offside or in this gray zone that you could be. Now, if you've found yourself, if you look back over the last few years that you're offside now, right this moment. Don't panic, but I do suggest you do a special thing called fill out an 8840 form for purposes of tax in the United States, and you must file it no later than mid-June, June 15th with the IRS. What you're actually doing is volunteering that you're overstayed, Um, so you don't want to be filing this forever. What you want to do is file it for the years that you're offside and then become compliant and get back on side. Now, in the really wealthy families, the other caution I make is this. If I'm affluent, I might decide I'll go spend my four months a year in America, but then I'm going to just do world cruising and go spend time in Spain or go somewhere else. Okay, that's fine, but where are you domiciled in the year of passing? Because what they'll do in the United States is they'll say, well, did you spend more time here than anywhere else? So let's say you only spent three months in Canada, four months in America, and then the rest of the time you traveled the world. 
That's a very dangerous place to be if you're an affluent family because they could argue that your domicile, your place of home, would be America because that's where you've spent the most time each calendar year, even though you spent less than 121 days there. So you have to understand the whole premise of the legislation there and what they're trying to conclude. The fundamental rule is that wherever you spend the most amount of time is most likely your domicile for the purposes of your tax. And so if you haven't spent enough time, for example, in Canada, let's say four months and a week instead of three months, and then in the US four, then it would be very difficult for you to argue with the IRS that you shouldn't be filing tax returns every calendar year annually because you really are domiciled there. In addition, if you die, they're going to go after your estate and say that you are domiciled for the purposes of estate tax and inheritance tax and try and chase you down for that wealth as a family. So we're very um, cautious, of course. You know, obviously, if you have a very tiny estate, they may not be as driven to chase you. Um, but the families that have affluence and have the privilege of traveling frequently in life and spending a lot of time abroad usually have affluence associated with their estate. And so those are the ones that would be quite um, attractive, obviously, for the IRS to take claim to. They've done something quite tricky in the United States recently, and I, I like to make mention of it so people are, have uh, a good awareness around this area. But they're trying to attract taxpayers into America. So one of the rules that they enacted a few years back was that if you buy a property worth more than a half a million dollars, then you can actually have residency for more than the six-month period a year. Well, the problem is that doesn't change your annual tax or your state tax. It just allows you the visa to enter. And more recently, I know everybody's chatting about this in the media. They're talking about a legislation for visas for Canadians to be able to spend nine months in America a year. Well, that's all good and well, but there's a consequence to that. And the consequence is you need to file tax returns with them every calendar year, and they will deem you to be resident potentially. And if they do, you owe annual tax to them, not just an inheritance tax potentially. And that could be a real problem for people with businesses. The moment you have a business, how the IRS views you as a Canadian is that you have these hidden offshore assets because they don't recognize Canadian corporations. They only recognize American corporations. And so they think you're trying to do some funny business. So they actually have rules for this and they're called the PFAC rules. And what they do is they impute that you must be making a whole bunch of money offshore and they should be able to collect on tax from that. So you can see how you're wintering away can actually have some pretty dramatic mathematical consequences to your estate on an annual basis, not just in the estate itself. And so we really want people to be aware of these rules before they get their hand caught in that cookie jar. So a very unique opportunity that we have internationally and not just in Canada. And so that's the beauty of these tools that we have. In the area of estate planning, we call it life planning. Uh, We use a mechanism called trust. And a trust is really a separate family member that we can elect its jurisdiction. We can decide where it lives, what it does, and how behaved it might be. And so it's a really unique opportunity, a real blessing, really, in tax legislation for us to be able to utilize this tool. And so frequently, we use these kinds of mechanisms to address families that are living an international uh, point of view. And many of us are in modern times. It's a really common um, situation for many of us today. So one of the techniques that we utilize when we want to buy recreational property in another jurisdiction, and then we're going to have an inheritance tax uh, that would be associated with that asset is prior, and this is the trick, it has to be prior to the purchase of the property, 
we actually set up an appropriate mechanism that that jurisdiction would recognize. So, for example, we would set up a U.S. trust. We would purchase the property inside of the trust. Trusts don't die. People do. And people trigger the tax. And so one of the unique opportunities is I could put a recreational property into trust for my spouse and I, and then we would have use of it for both lifespans, whoever lives the longest. And then when we transfer it to the next generation, it wouldn't be until they actually literally sell it and then actually have the capital, of course, Peter, to pay the tax associated with the property's growth. And so it's a much more protective way for us to still enjoy a warm climate in our winter months, um, but not to give up value out of our estates unnecessarily. Now, interestingly enough, this is another real need for many of us as families because a lot of our children don't remain in the jurisdiction they were born. So I don't know um, when we're thinking out loud, but if you think about all your cohorts, how many of their children actually reside, you know, within a few blocks like it used to be in, in the good old days? Most of the time, our children become very successful. If they don't move across, um, particularly across Canada, for example, to Ontario or Vancouver, sometimes they move into the United States. Many people are now traveling abroad and, and living in areas with oil and working abroad. I mean, it's not uncommon to hear about a family where two children have gone to Australia and only one is here. So this causes a different tax regime in your estate design because wherever your child resides is where we have to contend with how they inherit. And each place and each jurisdiction has a different tax regime on how your children and grandchildren may inherit. So one of the more uh, challenging areas in the world, of course, is America, because they have inheritance tax. So if I want to leave a $5 million estate to my successful uh, engineer son who lives down there, I all of a sudden have to think about, well, will I lose half of it before I give it to the children and grandchildren? Or is there a way in which I can plan so that they keep it? Really, to me, um, families that have an international um, situation where they have assets internationally or children internationally, the best thing they can do for their spouse, their children, their grandchildren is actually build a plan. It's the cheapest way to minimize their income tax that they're going to be facing as a family unit. Sherry, final thoughts as we conclude the program. You cannot be reactive in these kinds of situations. If you don't have a plan designed, a life plan like we always talk about, a plan to address those assets, a plan to pay whatever minimal tax that we can create for you in the estate design, then we will lose assets and we will lose valuable assets that have sentiment in the family. And we call it losing significance, but it it's legitimately the case is we don't work our whole life to create a farm operation. We don't work our whole life to all of a sudden have the recreational property in the last couple of decades of life and then to lose it to income tax. And, you know, we don't send our children abroad to become educated for them not to inherit our estate. Um, so what the key message would be today, in my opinion, is you have to be proactive. If you wait and let the IRS tell you, if you wait and let the jurisdictions that you hold the asset base in or where the children reside tell you what the tax burden will be, then you've missed the boat. Our thanks to Sherry McMillan for sharing her wisdom with us on the program today. A reminder, she'll be hosting the McMillan Estate Planning Life and Legacy Seminar Wednesday evening, April 22nd. You can register online at macmillanestate.com. This is The Strong Room.